the more we're evaluating, the more we're communicating specific results back to the participant's organization, the more difficult it is for that individual participant to relax into the experience. When we're working, we're always aware of the fact that our performance is being evaluated, is being measured, is being judged. So there's a kind of magic that happens. We let them know that they're not being evaluated and that their specific performance is not going to be shared with the organization. And what that allows for, and this is a beautiful thing, is for participants to relax into the experience to get past their nerve, what that does is really deeply cement individual learnings in multiple areas of the brain, which of course it correlates with strong long-term retention. Hi, I'm Manya, the host of Your Greatest Work podcast. This is a show for course creators and thought leaders who are creating a learning experience for their audience. I'm going to help you in this podcast by bringing on guest speakers and having great discussions with people from around the world on how to create really amazing learning experiences that get great results for learners. That's what we're here for, right, folks? Well, enjoy this next episode. Hi, Doug. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. Everybody who's listening, Doug is one of my favorite humans in the world, aside from maybe my own family. Thank you. (laughs) Doug and I have known each other for a lot of years. Um, Doug is actually the one of the pivotal people in my career who hired me when I started at BMO and taught me most of what I know. And Doug is Doug is the guy who I call when I need a little pep talk. So I appreciate Doug's mentorship. And he's also brilliant when it comes to learning and learning strategies. And he just knows what's going on in the industry. So I think everybody is going to want to really perk up their ears for this conversation. And it's going to mainly focus on practice and skills-based learning. So Doug, can you introduce yourself? Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much for that introduction, Manya. Um, I am the AVP of Business Development at Practical Learning, which means uh, I'm the sales guy <laughs> at Practical Learning, which doesn't mean that I keep my fingers out of the uh, design side of the business. That's a critical component uh, to being good at selling the product is, uh, is to understand how the design works mm-hmm. and uh, to stay current um, on what's moving out there in terms of instructional design. Yeah, great. Well, so what does practical learning do? What's sort of your um, big product that really sets you apart? Because I've worked with practical learning before, and I think what you do is really incredibly useful uh, when it comes to skills practice and super relevant right now as everybody's moving into the online model. So tell us a bit more about what is interesting about practical learning. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Practical learning has been around since the year 2000. And I think the story of our inception is really interesting. And we'll answer your question as well. Um, practical learning was formed um, by an instructional designer by the name of Amy Marcus, who at the time was working for Royal Bank. She was developing sales training and leadership training at Royal Bank. And one of the things that she noticed whenever she did follow up and tried to measure, you know, not just whether learning had occurred, but whether 
their behavior had actually mm-hmm. changed. She was frustrated because quite often the learning that she had developed that had been implemented and delivered to her target audiences, in fact, failed to change mm-hmm. behavior. So, you know, what evening, uh, Amy, who lives on um, the island here in Toronto, had a few friends over. Um, Amy's a really diverse and interesting uh, and creative person, a musician and mm-hmm. uh, a writer. So she has a great group of friends, many of whom are actors and musicians. She got into a conversation with them about what could be done to try to address that concern, to try to fix the fact that behavior wasn't changing. And they came up with this idea. What if, since people learn best by doing, especially when it comes to skills training, what if, instead of just stopping the learning after the knowledge had been transferred, there was an opportunity for people to practice the skills, for those learners to practice the skills either before they went back to their workplaces or just after they got to the workplace, would that make a difference to their ability to take the knowledge that they had learned and transfer it to the workplace, put it into practice, and change their behaviors? I'm sure that the instructional designers listening know that, Mm -hmm. of course, what the answer was. Yes, was the answer. It was successful. And that was the beginning of the company. So what practical learning does, in fact, is build simulations or role play scenarios that give people an opportunity to put into practice what they've learned about communication skills, generally speaking, sales skills, coaching skills, leadership skills, more specifically. And we do that by using actors who are also professional coaches and we work one-to-one with people. So it's a very personalized experience. The feedback is very targeted. It's very specific. And every role play scenario that's conducted is followed by coaching and very specific feedback and by an opportunity to try the skill again to further refine Uh, and hopefully master it. Oh, and that's so critical. I just love it. And it it gets me kind of excited because you know me, I like to improve myself. You know, I think that music background of mine has instilled a huge practice-based approach when it comes to learning new things. And I've actually had a couple of music teachers that are on this podcast, and it's all part of this whole series about how to get practice opportunities into our learning. So I think what you're doing is so cool, so useful. And what kind of results are you seeing after people have gone through this practice training? Because you must have data um, <laughs> data stacking up. So what kind of numbers are you seeing? Absolutely, we have data. And I think that's one of the things that sets practice apart as a learning tool is that by creating a what we call a skills list, which is a short list of 10 to 15, maybe maximum 20 tangible individual skills that we are evaluating as Mm -hmm. we are practicing with a participant, 
by the end of an experience, which will include three, four, five, or more individual role play scenarios, we're able to track which skills the participant was able to demonstrate consistently, which skills improved over the course of the practice activities, and how far they improved from the beginning, which in a way is a little bit of a benchmark Mm -hmm. through to the end, which is in a way an assessment, although we don't call it that because learner safety, which we'll maybe talk about later, is, Mm -hmm. is really critical to us. So what do we see? Of course, there's a range depending on the level of skill that each participant brings, but it's not unusual for us to see 10% to 45, even 50% improvement in the performance, the actual demonstrated performance of skills. That's pretty impressive. And it's so great to be able to have that evaluation built in. And I feel like that is something that instructional designers or course creators should be thinking more about. And I, and I know that I want to talk about that at some point in the future, because it's otherwise you have no clue what's going on. So you need to be able to build that mechanism in, which you've done very clearly. You mentioned learner safety. Could you talk more about that? Because that's a curious thought. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that the research shows, and one of the things that we've picked up in the last 20 years, just through experience, is that the more we're measuring, the more we're evaluating, the more we're communicating specific results back to the participants' organization, the more difficult it is for that individual participant to relax into the experience. Interesting. When we're working, we're always aware of the fact that our performance is being evaluated, is being measured, is being judged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and although there's some movement in uh, the corporate world away from the kind of performance evaluation uh, that has has characterized organizations for decades, probably centuries at this point, um, that's still happening. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of magic that happens when a participant starts to work with us, we're an outsider. Yeah. We're not part of the organization that they work within. We let them know that they're not being evaluated and that their specific performance is not going to be shared with the organization. And what that allows for, and this is a beautiful thing, is for participants to relax into the experience to get past their nerves. Because let's face it, role play. It, is, it can feel so awkward. <laughs> it can feel panic inducing yeah. for some people. Yeah. But if people can relax into the experience and receive the feedback openly, what that does is really deeply cement individual learnings in the brain, in multiple areas of the brain, which of course cor- it correlates with strong long term retention. Mm -hmm. That's why we're so interested in keeping the experience safe, because we know that if we can keep it safe, people will learn and retain what they've learned. And of course, we can always prepare and share aggregate level Mm -hmm. data with the organization. And we also 
collaboratively develop an action plan with individual participants so okay. that they've got something to talk about with their managers after the fact. Which is so but, great. They can celebrate their wins. They can talk about yeah. other areas they want to, you know, keep working on. Yep. So that's Absolutely. really cool for from a professional development standpoint. It is. Absolutely. And then what are you hearing from businesses when they talk about how this connects to business results? So, you know, if you're working with a group of your sales sales team um, who goes through this training, what kind of results are they getting excited about? Well, what they are excited about really is to, uh, there are two things that, that businesses get really excited about. First of all, that learners love the experience. It's so difficult to get that kind of, and I know that's just level one Kirkpatrick yeah, participant but reaction. It's important feedback. because when people find it boring or lame, they don't engage that well. Exactly. And I think that's a kind of a no brainer for most organizations. Mm -hmm. So they love that. They love the fact that they can actually see behavior change when they sit side by side with the participant and watch them engage with a client or with a coachee back in the workplace. So they can see that there have been tangible, measurable, observable changes in the behavior. Then there's a bit of a leap of faith, uh, as there always is when it comes to um, measuring impact, mm -hmm. because there are so many factors that go into whether there's in fact uh, a measurable change in uh, in the results. But most organizations are okay with being able to see that people are behaving differently. That's mm. more than they often get um, from other types of learning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. They they are seeing a change and that is obviously good. And if it gives their salespeople more confidence, that right away is going to impact their ability to do their job well, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's really, really cool. Now, what are you seeing? I want to switch gears a little bit here, um, but I know that you're always really paying attention to um, current social issues and I've seen some new content coming out of Practica around um, hard conversations and harassment in the workplace or equity, um, you know, inclusion. What, what can you tell us about that and how people might benefit from this sort of practice in these more sensitive areas? Mm -hmm. What we're seeing uh, is, uh, you know, and I think this is partly a result of the increased attention to inclusivity and belonging. It's partly because of the challenges that organizations are facing as a result of the COVID-19 mm -hmm. pandemic. But there's a lot more attention being paced, paid, I beg your pardon, to organizational culture, a lot more attention being paid to wellness and resilience. Uh, and a significant amount more attention being paid um, to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and I might say at last, um, mm. <laughs> we're seeing many, many, many organizations moving beyond, you know, um, what I would call the first steps of creating a more inclusive workplace to the tougher middle steps mm -hmm. where they've realized that, 
hey, nothing is going to change unless behavior changes. Nothing is going to change here unless our culture actually changes. So it's not enough for us just to tell people why it's important that they behave differently. We need to help them to actually behave differently. And that means helping them to become comfortable with conversations that may initially feel awkward or difficult. Let's face it, if we have, as leaders, um, grown up with or cut our teeth in environments that were homogenous, where most people that we worked with looked like us, came from the same background as us, mm -hmm. behaved like us, we're not going to be skilled at having conversations about the changes that are happening as our workplaces become more diverse yeah. and become more equitable. So practice, again, coming back to the foundations, is an amazing way to create a safe environment in which leaders, peers, um, managers, everyone can try out some of these new conversations, can say the things that they're afraid to to say, to talk yeah. about the things that they're not sure they're going to get right, to get it wrong. Well, to in get a it wrong means to get it wrong means embarrassment. You don't want to make people feel bad. You're not trying right. to be offensive. <laughs> Most people aren't, anyways. So it is really interesting to have this kind of an opportunity to practice with people who have got the terminology right. You know, yes. a group like Practical Learning and. But here's my, here's my challenge. It's not just that it's hard. It's not just that it's embarrassing. It's that those of us that belong to the predominant culture have the privilege of standing back from those conversations. And that is something that if it's not changed, if we don't stop using our privilege to avoid tough conversations, we will never foster the kind of trust, the kind of inclusivity, the kind of safety, psychological safety, and the kind of sense of belonging that we say we want to. So think about that. There's a direct correlation between my level of privilege and my ability to avoid difficult conversations. And that's got to be changed. Interesting. I'm trying to think of um, a good follow-up question to that because I almost just feel like that was a bit of a mic drop. <laughs> but you obviously then are creating these kind of learning environments currently around these really hard topics. Am I yes. right there? You're nodding your head. This isn't on video, so I want to I yes, kind of bring that in. And so how could we become more mindful, perhaps, if we're in, an, in the position to create this kind of learning or to create or embed more opportunities to talk about these sort of things within our own organizations or in our own courses? Because even people who are creating their own courses, entrepreneurs, this is something that needs to be thought of or included. So without kind of, you know, doing lip service to the issue, what kind of things could we include that 
would elevate our learning to a point where it, it is being more equitable? This is a loaded well, question, but do you have maybe one or two mm-hmm. practical uh, ideas? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the, the first thing that I will say is that we all have a lot to learn, and that's true for us at Practical Learning. We're proceeding very, very cautiously. We're proceeding after doing a lot of research. We're proceeding with the support of experts. We're proceeding with advice from um, people who don't look like us. Uh, and I think that that is something that has to happen for all of us. We need to learn more about this. And whether that's um, reading books, um, making a reading list for yourself, um, whether that's taking a course um, for Canadians, maybe at the Center uh, for Diversity and Inclusion, um, or whether that's having conversations that we didn't have before, be, mm-hmm. being brave, asking questions. Um, learning is the first Learning is the first step. So it's interesting to be mm-hmm. a learning professional. It's very f- meta. <laughs> it's very meta. And to suddenly find out, boy, we don't know a lot about this. And we need to, we need to be careful. I think this, um, this topic matter has, is different, mm-hmm. uh, in a number of ways from, you know, a sales conversation, from teaching and practicing a sales conversation or even a, a coaching conversation because of the, uh, sensitivity of the topic matter, the fact that we aren't necessarily practicing from our own lived mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. Uh, and the and the fact that uh, these kinds of conversations, if we're not careful, could be potentially triggering, and that's not something we want to do in a in a practice activity. So, what are we doing specifically uh, as we consider those things and as we continue to learn? What we've determined is that there are some topics that are just not safe for a practice environment. So we'll do one of two things um, with those. We will demonstrate them for people, either in a live demonstration. This is one of the advantages of working with actors is you can create really realistic live demonstrations and make that part of a virtual classroom experience. Okay. We love to do that. Um, You can also film a video that takes you back another step. Um, from the real world. Video also allows you to get it right, right. Uh, and make sure that uh, what you have filmed, what you want to demonstrate with that video um, is going to be received properly because you can have it reviewed by people uh, who represent um, different groups. Um, so those are some of the things that we're doing. And we're only really three years into this content. So okay. it's well, an at ongoing least you have been already experience. involved in it. And it wasn't something that you just, you know, quickly pulled together mm-hmm. um, this year mm-hmm. <laughs> as topics became really much more mainstream media. Yes. Um so yeah, it's it's great that you've already been doing that research and that work. And thank you for the insight because I know it's something that um, you know, people can feel a bit hesitant about asking these questions. So the more that we can bring it up, the better. Um, the more curious we can be, the better. Very cool. Agreed. Okay, changing topics again, Doug. Let's talk about how practice fits into the overall learning strategy. So learning in the flow of work is a topic that is talked about a lot with, you know, really great, really smart, forward-thinking 
um, learning professionals. And there has been some great new learning platforms, digital platforms that are giving us the opportunity to put resources right where people need them as they're working. So is there any way that we can include this practice or these resources for people while they're on the job? Let's say they have a sales, a tough sales conversation coming up, or they maybe, you know, are handling some objections with a customer. Are, are there any ways that you're introducing this sort of on the job resource or, or grab it when you need it type learning mm -hmm. opportunities? Yeah, actually, I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, it is a really cool time um, in terms of what is now available technologically to support learning and flow of work. And I think particularly for employees who have been on the job for some time and who have reached that stage where they've got, where they are experts. I think um, those tools are very, very helpful. What I think is important to keep in mind, though, is that employees at other stages of the of the employee learning journey have needs as well. And what we're piloting right now for employees who are not quite experts, but have reached the stage where they're capable is something that we're calling the practice help desk. What we're doing is we're making, uh, we call our uh, our coaches role player coaches because of their uh, dual uh, skill with uh, acting in realistic role plays and following that up with professional feedback and coaching. Okay. Our role player coaches, we're making them available at a kind of a help desk. So we staff it three days a week and they're there between the hours of 10 and 4 p.m. And for our clients that are piloting this approach, what we've done is we've made it possible uh, for employees to simply pick up the phone, um, book an appointment with a half hour's notice, and then talk directly to a role player coach about skills that they would like to polish up on. Um, wow, this sounds amazing. Where do I sign up for this, Doug? Honestly, a lot of the stuff you're talking about is for big companies. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as entrepreneurs, it's also so helpful because who do you pick up the phone and get that advice from unless you've got, you know, this brilliant all-around coach? Absolutely. I, I mean, and that... That's the cool thing about this. I mean, one of the things that I think is really great about this is coaching is often reserved for people who can afford to hire an executive coach. That's right. Um, and that can be costly and not mm -hmm. all of us have that kind of budget. The great thing about um, the environment of practical learning is that we're a kind of a contact center environment. So we get to realize some of the efficiencies. Right now, people are working from their homes, so mm -hmm. there's no overhead cost beyond what it costs us to kind of equip them with the technology that they need. So we're trying to find a price point that can work to make it uh, cost-effective for organizations to have somebody there on demand. Um, the other cool thing about this is because the role player coaches are actors and many of them are very, very skilled with improvisation is that a 
a learner can bring a real world scenario to that conversation. They can say, you know what, I've got this conversation with a client and I've got to talk to them about a new pricing strategy and it is going to cost them more to buy our service. Can you help me to practice that? that conversation, because I need to get better at, you know, dealing with the difficult uh, questions that they're going to raise. And the role player will gather a little bit more information, a little bit more detail, maybe some character information. And then they will improvise that conversation and provide coaching and feedback um, on whatever skill it is that the individual learner feels the need to develop. That is going to be, in my opinion, such a valuable skill because, yes, you know, we learn a lot in that um, curated learning environment using whatever simulation or situation your employer has decided is meaningful or important. But often until you, um, until you kind of got skin in the game and I've, uh, or, or you're actually like working through something in reality, that's when all of a sudden you just need to find the right words. Mm-hmm. And when it's theoretical, even though it's challenging, it's, still a lot harder when it's reality. Oh my goodness, yes. I I couldn't agree more. And you know what? The research shows that when it comes to practice, when it comes to deliberate practice, the closer you can simulate uh, reality, as you say, the better. And that's why we've invested, um, and now I sound like I'm selling, Uh, That's why we think it's so important to use actors Mm -hmm. because they can create, they can simulate reality so that what you're getting when you're talking with them will pull you in, will immerse you uh, in the experience. And you won't be able to pretend that you're more skilled than you in fact are. You're going to move very quickly to the level of skill that you're actually at. And that's what we want because we want to be coaching to your real skills. I think that's so unique and it's something that I've always found really interesting about practical learning. So I'm glad we could talk more about it because I actually feel like I learned a lot more about what's going on and it resonates even more deeply with me now that I'm in some of these positions as, as an entrepreneur, you know, having to make, having to have these sales conversations, all of a sudden Mm -hmm. I'm recognizing, wow, you know, reading a book is one thing. Um, and selling, you know, in air quotes to your network who knows you well is another thing. But um, actually, these skills are very necessary to develop when you're reaching out to people who don't know your past performance and who you actually have to really meet their needs in a real way. So, Agreed. And I, I will say that that's you know, my, my last sort of emerging theme uh, for, for our conversation is that virtual selling or virtual relationship management or virtual um, client experience is different in ways that we're not fully aware of yet. I know it's different than taking somebody out for dinner or meeting up for, you know, I don't know, some sort of a in-person scenario. It's very different. It is. It is. It's almost more like facilitation um, in that you are maintaining a level of meta awareness. You used the the expression meta earlier of the responses and reactions of the person that 
you are talking to virtually and looking at uh, via web conference at the same time as you're having a conversation, an everyday conversation, um, you need to be aware of when they check out and then respond uh, tactfully and skillfully to that. You need to be aware of when there's suddenly a distraction. When one of their kids walks in uh, to the background and taps them on the shoulder, you need to be able to know how to respond to that and how to bring that in and how to actually build your relationship with the client through that kind of unexpected event. So, so that's something we're doing a little bit of work on and discovery on uh, as well right now. Yeah, because would you say that you're finding it's harder for people or just uh, sorry, harder for people to do this virtual selling, or is it just different and we don't quite have the skill set yet? Yes, this this really the answer is yes, uh, it is harder and everybody feels that um, zoom fatigue is the words are the words that we put to that. But there's also a lot that we are simply not aware of. So a lot of things that are different, a lot of things that are happening um, that we're just not aware of um, and that we're only now learning. Uh, for salespeople, for example, um, what is happening that's different now is that the level of level for sign-off on decisions is moving higher and higher in organizations. And so when you're talking to somebody who used to be able to sign off on a deal, you are you may not be talking to the person who's actually the decision maker anymore and you mm. might not know that unless you go in aware of the fact that that is happening in many organizations right now you won't be aware so there are a lot of things that are uh that are um uh that we're just not aware of and uh, i'm trying to find uh, uh the right word for it and i can't that's okay <laughs> we can't always be brilliant every second of the day. <laughs> Although you are. Um, great. Well, I'd like to sort of just summarize a couple of things that stand out from my perspective. And I, mm -hmm. and I feel like I'm kind of sitting in the, the audience's shoes. So when we create these learning environments, we can create amazing behavior change. We have to get creative, I think, with how we um, include deliberate practice. And it sounds like it's easier when it's one-on-one. -on -one. I'm feeling that, you know, with some other conversations around this topic, there's been a lot of great um, insight as to, one, as to how effective one-on-one -on -one is when we do deliberate skills practice. But one question that still stands out for me is, is there a way, is it possible, and this is exploratory, maybe you don't have the answer, but is it possible to create this sort of practice opportunity when the learning is maybe asynchronous or when it is less of this one-on-one -on -one model? Because that gets expensive. If I'm a course creator and I include this one-on-one, -on -one, you're ramping up the price of that course considerably. So my question is, is it possible, do you think, Doug, to create this kind of practice in an asynchronous environment? I think that it is. And I think that, um, again, um, when you are trying as a designer to create a course that achieves its objectives, it's about uh, looking holistically at that course and 
sometimes that may mean taking components that are currently being taught in one environment and shifting them into a more effective uh, environment in order to save a little bit of money there and invest it more wisely somewhere else. I'll give you an example. With one organization that we've done a lot of work with, probably our biggest client, in fact, what we discovered was that they had a two and a half day program that was helping people who sold investments to retail clients um, to build their skill with the kind of discovery conversation that is so important to understand a client's full financial picture. So you can understand that in that two and a half day classroom based course that existed, there was a lot of time invested into skills development. The, mm-hmm. the client wanted to improve the measurable changes in behavior that, that they saw at the end of that course. And the way that they found they could do that was to just pull out about a half a day's worth of that skill development content and transfer it into a one and a half hour deliberate practice component that uh, we delivered for them. And so they were able to actually come up with a net savings Mm -hmm. in the cost of that course because since it was face-to-face, they lost the half a day of facilitator time, meals, accommodations, and were able to reduce travel expenses as well. And all of that was replaced with a leaner, um, quicker, much more personalized one-to-one experience. Um, yeah, and sometimes we see in classrooms that we put together these role play activities or situations, and you know it's kind of half-assed by participants. You know, they they do it, and they're kind of like, oh, "When can we get this over with?" You know, it's not always as um, challenging because that other peer who is learning side by side, you know, they might not be able to give that hard feedback or as much of that constructive feedback. So I can see how the behavior change would actually be more effective with the one-on-one rather than Mm -hmm. a half a day's worth of peer-based role-playing. Yes. Well, and just imagine, and I love role-play in classrooms, so I don't want to speak badly about it at all. I still encourage designers to to do that. But mm -hmm. imagine the difference between um, how much time it would take to teach that classroom of 30 people um, if instead of one facilitator standing at the front of the room trying to manage, mm-hmm. you know, 10 breakout groups of three people that are doing role playing. If that instructor was actually engaging one on one, there's an enormous time savings. And by the way, when there's a time savings, then that means that your opportunity cost is much, much lower. So for groups like those investment professionals, um, or, um, uh, mortgage um mortgage development officers at banks Mm -hmm. um time really is money Mm -hmm. and by the way time is also resistance for some of those sales audiences so oftentimes they welcome the opportunity to do something that is much briefer um and time effective and personalized very cool so i hope that people listening can find some really great um, practical strategies that they could maybe include in their own 
learning design, whether that be for a corporate environment or for their own courses that they're creating and selling. I believe that this topic of practice and deliberate skills development is really necessary to create courses that people want to finish and that they actually get results from, because at the end of the day, that's the whole point. So thank you, Doug. Your insight here has been really incredible, and I hope people are interested in checking out Practical Learning more. You do write some great articles on LinkedIn as well, Doug, so we'll include that link here so people can stay in touch with what you're doing and hopefully reach out and ask more questions if they feel inspired by what you're talking about. So thanks again, Doug. and um, My, My pleasure. Hopefully we can talk again soon on this platform. I look forward to it. Thanks, All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you were able to pull something really useful out of this episode. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please contact us if you'd like to learn more about anything that we've discussed or if you need help creating your next learning experience. We've got lots of great ways to work together and I would love to have a conversation to see if it might be the right fit. Also, consider leaving us a review and definitely subscribe so you don't miss out on any interesting topics that could really help you in your journey.